In our Hebrew series, we have come to one word which says Barak. That means we're jumping back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at Judges chapter 4 in particular. We'll look at chapter 5 a little bit, but Judges chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. As we look at Judges chapter 4, you have to know a little bit about the cycle of the book of Judges as well. As you look through the book of Judges, the entire book is demonstrating to us that all of the judges that come forward are fallen judges and is pointing the way to the one righteous and just and true judge, Jesus, God, that will come. And so we understand and we see throughout all of these judges, all of these people who are listed in the heroes of the faith, fallen people, sinful people who are broken, just like we are. And I don't say broken in a sense to say that they're bad or worse off than any of us. The Bible does this to indicate to us that we are all sinful. We all have our issues. All of these judges have issues, and today is no other. It's going to be just the same pattern when we look at Barak and we look at his issue. And with Barak, his issue was hesitation. It's when faith hesitates. It's what we're going to look at this morning. It's an interesting passage in Judges chapter 4. It begins in a similar fashion to some of the others. It starts off in verse 1 talking about the people doing again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and that's the cycle in the book of Judges. The people did what was evil in the sight of God. God would raise up somebody to take them over and to persecute them and to be in charge of them, and then they would all of a sudden decide it was time to repent and cry out to God for salvation. They would repent. They would cry out to God for salvation. God would raise up a judge. That judge would rule. That judge would drift off the scene. As that judge drifted off the scene, the people would again do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord would raise up somebody to put them under bondage, and the cycle would continue all throughout the book of Judges so that it ends saying, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's the book of Judges. In the narratives that we have, and many of them in the book of Judges, you have the setting of the scene, the introducing of the characters, then you have the conflict taking place, and then you have the resolution and conclusion. This one's going to be very similar. So we're going to start off by reading the introduction, and then we'll walk through the rest of it as we go through the sermon. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word of Judges chapter 4, verse 1? Judges chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Dear Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would just help us to learn from your word today. Father, I pray that you would help us to have a confidence that you are a God who is truly faithful, and that when you command us to do something, Lord, we have confidence that the power rests in you and not in us, so that we will act and obey and trust in you. And we ask this in Jesus' great name, amen. And you may be seated. So here we set the cycle. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 2 tells us very clearly, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, so we're introduced to the, to the main uh, antagonist in the story here. It was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Goyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now, why did they have to cry out to the Lord for help? 
It says here because he had 900 chariots of iron and he cruelly oppressed the people for 20 years. If you want to know about how he oppressed the people for 20 years, chapter 5 in the song gives us a little bit more information. Chapter 5 in the song that comes out of Deborah and Barak says in verse 6 that in those days the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. In this song, in this poem that comes afterwards, it's saying that nobody went through the main thoroughfares, that they were oppressed so much that everybody stayed off the main roads and the main trade routes, and they stayed to the back roads. The major trades were abandoned. It also continues in verse 8 where it says, there wasn't a shield or a spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. And so perhaps an exaggeration here, perhaps poetically speaking, perhaps not. We don't know but it indicates that they had no shields, no spears. They had no military advantage, which is important when you begin to look at the, at the chariots of iron that the other opposing forces had. You also see in chapter 5, verse 30, that it indicates that they had a womb or two for every man, which indicates the spoils of war and the fact that these evil people who were oppressing them were raping one or two women as the spoils of the war. So it's a bad situation. When they look out humanly in their own eyes, they see 900 chariots of iron. Now, what did these chariots look like? We don't know. We get no other description than chariots of iron. It's probably not a complete chariot made of iron because you understand how heavy that would be and how many horses that would take and how wide the wheels would have to be to logistically roll through things without sinking down. So it's probably not an entire chariot of iron. It's probably one of two options, either a chariot that strategically has iron around it at vulnerable spots to make it a military advantage, or perhaps, and the one I kind of lean to, is that it had those skiffs that come out of the wheels. You've seen those in the movies before where they would have the chariot and they would have the wheels and out of the wheels would be these long metal poles that would come out and as these wheels would turn, these skiffs would turn and if you were an infantry soldier and the chariot was coming towards you, you not only had to get out of the way of the horse and the chariot, but these long metal poles coming off the sides would actually cut the foot soldiers right off at their legs and it was a military advantage. So what we see here is that looking out humanly speaking, they had no hope. They had no chance. They could not overcome 900 chariots of iron with just them. It was an impossible scenario. So for 20 years, Israel cruelly was oppressed. And then we're introduced to the characters of this story. The characters, we begin in verse four, where it says, now Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. And so recognize there that Deborah is so influential that they named the tree that she sat under after her. That was known as her tree. Now, now some of you may have seats in Chuck's or other locations, I don't know, and they say, that's your seat. You always go to the same spot. People know where to find you if they're coming to look for you. Maybe it's in a particular class. Maybe it's a study location. Maybe it's a seat at the basketball game or a volleyball game that people know this is where you are. She had a palm tree that she sat under, and everybody knew that that's where she was. It was between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we are introduced to Deborah. Now, a lot of people want to make Deborah the main point of this passage. Deborah is not the main point of this passage, so we're not going to get sidetracked on either side of a discussion today, but I do want to point out to you that Deborah was a very special person. 
In the Old Testament, there are three prophetesses that are mentioned. You have Miriam, who's mentioned in Exodus 15, 20. You have Huldah, who is mentioned in 2 Kings 22, 14. And you have Deborah, who is mentioned in Judges chapter 4. She's a special person. You have her sitting under a tree and Israel coming to her. She's not a prophetess in the sense of an Isaiah or a Jeremiah who stood up in front of large crowds and proclaimed, thus saith the Lord. She was your wise counselor. She was your godly woman that people sought out information from. And they would come to her from all over the place to the palm of Deborah and they would put things before her to get her influence. She is the only judge mentioned in the book of Judges that doesn't lead the military force into battle. She summons Barak, as we will see later on. She says that the army was given into Barak's hands, so Barak was the one that went to war. She wasn't the one that was there in battle. She was absent there. In chapter 5, she is referred to as the mother of Israel, and so it's emphasizing here that she was a godly woman. We need more Deborahs. We need more women of great faith who are godly women who relish in the responsibility that God has given them and they do so with such great wisdom and such great depth that people seek them out for their counsel and they seek them out on a one-on-one basis to understand what's going on and they like that wisdom that's coming. She is a great woman of faith and we'll come back to that more in the application section. It it introduces us here too though to another person. In verse six it says, she sent and summoned Barak. Now Deborah's name means honeybee. Barak's name means lightning. I'll come back to that too. Barak, meaning lightning, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and she said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor and take 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak responds to her. Now, the scenario that's happening here is that Deborah has summoned Barak. She's asking Barak a question. And the commentators differ on this. Some of the commentators want to say, this is the first time Barak has received this information. I don't think that's the right viewpoint. The viewpoint that I take is some of the other commentators who say that Barak knows God has called him out. And Barak knows that God has given the army into his hands, but Barak's scared because he's looking out seeing 900 chariots of iron, and he's saying, there's no way this army can take that army because they have a superior military advantage. We can't win. Since we can't win, I'm not going. I don't want to meet his army in that valley because they will destroy us. There's nothing we can do. Why do I believe that that's what's happening here? Because the response that he gives her in verse 8, Barak says to her, If you will go with me, I will go. Let me try to add a little emphasis on here as to how it plays out in my mind. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I'm going home to mommy. Oh, that's not in there. But that's close. You get the point here, right? You have Barak. Now, who is Barak? He is the guy that's the leader of the army. He is the general He is the guy that's going to win the mini Arnold weightlifting competition. He's the MMA guy. He's the guy that's the man's man. He's the guy who says if it's brown, it's down. If it flies, it dies. He's going to kill everything. He's your man's man, right? And then you hear in this particular instance, a macho type individual. And when the Lord calls him to do something of great faith, he doesn't do it. So Deborah, honeybee, calls out lightning. 
you like that sound effect? I'm working on it here. You know, White Lightning was the name of the, the team, and yes, I do know what that means, but I thought it was a funny play on words, and so Lightning is powerful, it's quick, it's strong, you can't stop it, it destroys whatever it hits. So White Lightning was the name of the competition team I had when I did karate back in the day, and I thought that was just awesome. So you got a guy here who's a man's man whose name means lightning. It means he's fast, he's powerful, he's strong, he can strike with quickness, he will destroy whatever comes. And along comes a honeybee to say, would you step up and do something? Now, there's an application for us here as well. When we look around this world right now, guys, I have to call you out and say this because it's, it's our generation. It's not just, I'm not talking just to you. I'm talking to all of us here. The women right now have much more faith than the men do in our society. When we give signups to go on mission trips, the majority of people that sign up in a hurry are female, not male. When you look at church attendance, the majority of people who go to church on a regular basis are female. They're not male. Guys, we need men who are not like Barack. So don't be a Barack and step up, get rid of the skinny bedazzled jeans. We don't need any of them. We don't need them. Funny that that's the most popular line I'm going to say all day today, right? Get rid of skinny, bedazzled jeans. Yeah, we don't need them, guys. But also, guys, it's not just about that. You need a plan. You need to step up and lead. How are you going to look at one of these great godly women around here, women of faith, and you're going to go up to them and you're going to say, hey, you know, I think you're pretty. I'd really like to get to know you a little bit. And they start looking at you thinking, you're not going to be a godly leader for me. You don't, how often have you had your quiet time? Where is your Bible? What's your memorization plan? When's the last time you shared the gospel? And you're like, wait a second. My halo rating is like 31. That's pretty good. And they say, what are you going to do when you graduate? I'm going to go home and save some money. I'm not living with you and your mama in your basement. That's not going to happen. <laughs> You've got to have a plan to step up and do something bold for God. And so when somebody comes up to you and says, what's your plan? Guys, have a plan. Even if you can't achieve it, get a bold plan for God to step out and do something amazing for the Lord. That's all the ladies in the room clapping right now. So I'm just saying to you guys, you want one of these godly, beautiful ladies running around campus? Get a plan, all right? They're telling you. Don't get a line. Don't get a pickup line. Get a plan. Your line only lasts for one sentence. Your plan gives you something to do for the rest of your life. And here we have Deborah, a woman of great faith who comes up to Barack, who should have been taking charge and leading and doing all these great things. And Barack is sitting there on his hands and Honeybee comes up to him and says, look, get it in gear and go. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you? If you will go with me, I will go. So she says, I'll go with you, verse 9. Nevertheless, because you're hesitating like this, nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, I'm sure right there he thought Deborah was going to be that woman. I'm sure in his mind it was Deborah, and he was sitting there thinking, I'll make sure you don't get there before I do. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun, Naphtali, and Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up to him at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. All right, so here's some application for this particular section. Number one, don't look at the world through human eyes. Look through God's eyes. 
When we look out at the world, we see 900 chariots of iron and we say, I can't make a difference. But you're right, we can't make the difference, but God can make a difference. And so we don't look at the world through our human eyes. We look at the world through God's eyes. And if God says, do something, we do it. We follow up with great faith because God has already won the victory. We just have to go obey him. We need more Baracks. I've already touched on that. But we also need more Debras. We need more women of great faith. Think about Deborah right here and what she could have done. Deborah could have said, God, this Barack guy is a loser. He won't get up and go and do what he's supposed to do. I'm going to go do it for him. But Deborah is no Xena warrior goddess. She is a godly woman who is content to do what God has called her to do with excellence and to do it with great faith. And I'm here to tell you, we need more Debras in this world too, who will encourage guys, who will be godly counselors and have godly wisdom and who will say, I'm going to be a woman of great faith no matter what. And so give us more Debras and give us less Baracks in this world. We move to the battle. The battle, as it begins here in verse 11, starts out with foreshadowing. And so verse 11 seems like it's completely out of place because it says, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oaks of Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. Now that complete verse just seems completely out of context. It'll make sense as we get to the end, but it's a, the writer's giving us some foreshadowing here of a little piece of information that will help make the end of it make more sense to us. In verse 12, then Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera called out all of his chariots. He didn't need all of his chariots, but he called them all out. He said, I'm going to have a show of force. I'm going to come out strong. I'm going to scare these guys. I'm going to let them know you can't beat me. And so God had a plan here, even in the heart of Sisera, for Sisera to call out all of his chariots. He called them all out and all the men who were with him from Harasheth, Agoyim, to the river Kishon. Look at what happens in verse 14. Then Deborah, honeybee, says to lightning, up, get out of bed, go. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak gets up and he goes. And he went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And here's your big battle scene in verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now, if this were a movie we would all leave the movie and be disappointed because we lead up to a climactic scene that's taking place here and you get just a little bit of a verse and that's it, the Lord routed them. Judges does this over and over. Jericho, what happened? It was all about marching around the walls and obeying God and then the walls fell down. It wasn't about the battle, it was about the fact that the Lord was in charge and the battle was the Lord's and the Lord took care of it. And this, it's not about the battle, it's not about any great brilliance of Barak. It just says the Lord routed them. So how did the Lord route them? Well, thankfully, we have chapter 5 where we have the song that gives us a little bit more information about how the Lord routed them. And in verse 19 of chapter 5, it says the kings came and they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan by the waters of Megiddo. 
They got no spoils of silver for the heaven. The stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. If you read all of chapter five, here's the picture and here's the setting of what takes place. They come down and they meet in this valley. And as they're meeting in this valley, you have a river that's running through it. And you have the 900 chariots of iron and you have the foot soldiers. And if this were a Hollywood movie, then off in the distance somewhere, it would flash to a scene of dark clouds and lightning flashing, which would remind you of Barak's meaning of his name of lightning. And as the lightning flashed, the rain would begin to trickle down and it would begin to get heavier and heavier. And as the music picked up in this movie that we were watching, you would see all of these chariots of iron begin to assemble. And it would show in on one of the wheels of these chariots of iron as the water began to come up over the bottom of the wheel. And next thing we would clip to would be a a scene of the river as it begins to overflow its boundaries just a little. And then the rains grow faster and harder and faster and harder. And this river begins to rush outside of its boundaries. And it comes and it hits these 900 chariots of iron so that it describes the horses as the horse's hooves are pounding into the ground, trying to move these iron chariots that are heavy and they have sunk up in their wheels and they have become worthless anchors to hold back the army. And here with these worthless 900 uh, different chariots of anchors stuck in the mud. The army rushes down and destroys them and wipes them out. And the scripture tells us through that the Lord did it. We're not surprised. Part of the Red Sea so the children of Israel could get through. The armies of Egypt decide to do the same. Closes in the water, he destroys them. What does this say to us? The battle's the Lord's. He's in control. We look at this world and we say, how can we make a difference? It just seems as though everything is set against us. It seems as though we're swimming upstream. How are we gonna be able to make an impact in the world? And I wanna say to you out of this, we have never been able to make an impact in the world, but God can change the world through his power, through men and women willing to be faithful to him. He can do incredible, mighty things in such a way that he gets the glory for it. And that's what we should be after. So what happens next? Barak pursues the chariots. What's he doing? He's going after the glory that he lost. Deborah's not down here. I'm going to go get it. He's probably thinking in his own mind, Psalm 27, if it had been written by that time, to say some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our Lord. And he is pursuing and he's going after him. And Barak is pursuing all the way to Harasheth Agoyim. It's the hometown. It's where he's going. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. But look at verse 17. We'll call this hammer time. Verse 17. Sisera flees or fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. Now that comes back. All of a sudden, the foreshadowing that we had in verse 11 comes back and we say, wait a second, Heber the Canaanite, that's not a normal name. We've heard that name before. Why does that name mean something? Well, Heber the Canaanite was a descendant from the father-in-law of Moses. Well, that's not a good thing for the guy who has been treating the Israelites so ruthlessly to be running over to the father-in-law of Moses' descendants because there's gonna be some ties there and blood runs thicker than water. And so whatever treaty may have been taking place there, this is not a good scenario 
scenario, but Sisera didn't know this. Sisera, instead of running to his hometown, covers his tracks up and flees off to the side to go to a place where he has a treaty and he thinks he's going to be safe. And he goes and he looks and runs on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was a peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Canaanite. And Jael came out to meet him. He came out, she came out to meet Sisera and said to Sisera, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside and went to the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. But instead of giving him water, she opened up a skin of milk and gave him milk to drink and then covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes to ask you, is anyone here? Say no. Think about the scene here. So often we run right past this and we don't think about what's actually happening in the scene. JL is here. She's in her tent. Sisera has just laid down. Sisera has been covered up. She gave him milk. Some people say she slipped something into the milk. Some people say she was just demonstrating good hospitality. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what we know is that she gave him more than he asked for. So he was comfortable. So he laid down. He went to sleep. What's she going to do? In her tent right here is the person who is defiant against God and defiant against God's people, a person who has been oppressing them for 20 years, laying there asleep in her tent. The text tells us what she did. She took a tent peg and a hammer. She went softly to him. Can you see the scene in your mind? She grabs that tent peg. She grabs that hammer. She walks softly over to them. I don't know how a lady would walk softly. I'm not supposed to know how a lady would walk softly, but I mean, maybe she's tiptoeing a little bit. I don't know. You know, if it's me, I'm doing those big broad steps, but that, maybe she's doing that too. I don't know. I can only imagine, using sanctified imagination, that adrenaline begins to flow. She begins to think in her mind, what am I going to do? Can I really take a tent peg and do this? Here is the enemy of God. I imagine that that adrenaline taste begins to creep into her mouth as her heart begins to race and a sweat begins to beat up on her forehead as she looks over at the enemy of the Lord asleep right here in her tent. And does she hesitate like Barak has hesitated? The text never tells us that she hesitates at all. The text tells us that she took the tent peg, she took the hammer in her hand, she went over softly to him and she drove the peg into his temple until it went all the way down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. It doesn't tell us she hesitated. Maybe she did in her own mind or her thoughts, but it says she went over and she took that tent peg and she drove it all the way down into the ground, straight through his temple. Blood probably splattered. She probably wiped it off her face. She was probably a little excited, a little nervous, a little scared. She walked back over. Barak was still pursuing Sisera. J.L. came out to meet him, and J.L. came out, and it says, when, it says to him, come, and I will show you the man you are seeking. Ah, I bet Barak's heart begins to beat fast as he thinks, now is the time for battle. Prepare myself. So he went into her tent, and when he walked into a tent, she lo- he looked into to J.L.'s tent, and he saw Sisera with a tent peg up out of his temple. We don't know what happened I can only imagine when he saw that sight that his heart dropped as he realized God will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. 
probably looked at J.L. with this disgusted look on his face of unbelievable. A tent peg and a hammer against the mightiest man who has oppressed us for 20 years. Now, there's a lesson for us here, too. God had been preparing Heber the Canaanite for the move. God had been preparing the tent that J.L. was going to occupy. God had prepared the steps that Sisera was going to take. God had prepared J.L. because in that day and time, the women put up the tents, and so she knew how to use a tent peg and a hammer. This wasn't new. She had a gift, and she knew how to use it. It may have just been driving a tent peg into the ground, but boy, when she drove that tent peg, she drove it all the way through one temple, through the other temple, and into the ground, the text tells us. She knew how to drive a tent peg better than most of us know how to drive a tent peg. And so the application for you today is this. You have a gift. You have a skill. You have a talent. God can use your talent, your skill to do something for his glory. And so don't ever say, God can't use me. God can use you. Don't ever say, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. I don't have a purpose to be on mission with God. Yes, you do. You are a Christian. You are a soldier of Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ. You are somebody who has a mission and a purpose in life. And God has a plan for you to do something great for his glory. Wherever he places you, wherever he puts you, whatever career or vocation that you have, you have a purpose that God wants you to do something for him. Look for that. Find it. Get in Bob, don't hesitate. By faith, trust that he's going to take care of it and let God use you wherever he places you to do great things for him. You have a calling for your life. Don't waste it. Whatever gift he's given you, use it. God has a plan. God uses the gifts he gives you. Continues here and it says in verse 22, He went in, he saw Sisera dead, the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, not Deborah, not Jael, not Barak, but God, the king of Canaan before the people of Israel and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So what's this about? Is this chapter about Deborah? No. Deborah's in the beginning, and then she fades off the scene. Is this chapter about J.L.? Well, no, no, no. She comes on very late. She drives in a tent peg. She does a great job. She wins an Academy Award Oscar for driving in the best tent peg of the entire year in all of the films. She, gets, she does great what she does, but it's a small part, right? It's a supporting role. Oh, well, it's got to be Barak then, right? Because Barak is the one cited in 1 Samuel. And even in, in Hebrews, as it talks about Barak being the person of faith, Barak, is he the hero? He's one of the main characters, but is he the hero of this story? Because he hesitates. The hero of this story is God. The hero and the point of this story comes out very clearly at the end of the song in chapter five. And you know, when you're writing papers, you're not supposed to introduce new information into the conclusion of a paper. But at the conclusion of this narrative in chapter five, there's new information that comes in in verse 28, where it gives you the poetic vision of out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera welled through the lattice. Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? Her wise as princesses answer her, and indeed she answered herself, have 
they not found and divided the spoils? A womb or two for every man. Spoiled of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoiled of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as a spoil. And here is Sisera's mom peeking out through the window, looking off in the distance to see a puff of dust and to think, is that the chariots coming? No, that's not the chariots. Another puff, is that the chariots? Oh, well, they're just enjoying the spoils of war. And there she is looking out. And in chapter five, which begins as it is written to hear, O kings, and give ear, O princes, to the Lord I sing, it comes to the conclusion. And in verse 31, the main point is, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. What's the main point of this passage? It's the enemies of God will end up disillusioned and destroyed, but the faithful will end up victorious and justified. The enemies of God, those who deny his work, those who do not trust in his grace and believe in his grace through faith, will end up disillusioned and destroyed. On the coming judgment day, they will realize they have lived their life for nothing. They are disillusioned and they are going to be destroyed in a hell that was built for the devil. Oh, but those who have faith, the faithful, those who are united with Christ. It is those who, even though in this life they may not have it all, they will end up victorious and they will end up justified as God looks upon them and declares them clean and declares them justified because of their unity with Christ. And they will end up victorious to live and to reign in heaven forever with God Almighty. And that is your lot today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are not to be disillusioned and destroyed, but we are on the winning side that will be victorious and that will be justified at the day of judgment. And so it's all about God and his grace and what he's provided for us. Are you excited that we are among the victorious and the justified? Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt whispers, Faith answers. I don't hesitate. When you know that God has called you to do something with boldness, with confidence, not in yourself but in the Lord, run hard and fast after God. Don't hesitate. Stand for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would just help us all, even in our moments of weakness, Lord, where we do doubt or where we do wonder, to not hesitate, but to take steps of bold faith to follow you. God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us and cares about us and that you have given us your word so that we can learn from Old Testament narratives like this one. God, I thank you that you are a gracious God who forgives our sins and who sent Jesus to die on the cross to die in our place. Lord, help us never to take that for granted. Lord, help us in our lives to live lives set to bring glory to you in all that we say and all that we do. That's my prayer for myself and for all of the students, faculty, and staff here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.